John chapter 17. It's going to be the final section of this chapter, verses 20 through 26. And as I've done throughout this series, I just want to, since we've been using different texts to highlight prayers and different sections and movements of praise in scripture, I just want to set the tone and, and kind of lay out the groundwork of what's going on at this very moment. Most likely, in the upper city of Jerusalem, which would be southwest of the temple area, in an upper room that was commonly used for hosting guests, for dining, for cooling off on a really hot day, God in human flesh washed the feet of fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, and even a traitor. Can you imagine being in this situation in an upper room that was used for hosting people for God in human flesh to take the lowest position in the house, which was the servant who had washed feet and begin to wash the feet of his disciples one by one, including Judas. 2000 years ago. And on this particular evening, while he was washing their feet, Jesus then goes into a movement of eating dinner with them. He eats dinner with his disciples for the final time, and he teaches them, and he encourages them. And much of his teaching is included in what's been labeled the upper room discourse, which is between John chapter 13 and John 17. It's a a long-running segment of scripture with a lot of the teachings, the final teachings of Christ before his betrayal. He also introduces communion on this night to his disciples, which we'll get to partake of together as a church in a little bit. And as Jesus concluded his talk with the disciples and just before leaving the upper room to go to the garden of Gethsemane, which was at the base of the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley from, we would call it the old city of Jerusalem. Before he goes to the garden where he's going to pray and be betrayed, Jesus concludes his time in the upper room with a prayer. And that's the prayer that we have here in John chapter 17. Because if you look at chapter 18, it says, after Jesus had said these things, he and his disciples cross over the Kidron from the southwestern area of the upper city down across the Kidron to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be betrayed. And it seemed fitting this morning to conclude this series with Jesus's words. And not just Jesus's words, but his prayer over us, over us, everyone in this room who belongs to Christ. The prayer of Jesus in John 17 is broken up into three parts. Jesus first prays for himself at the beginning of the chapter. In the middle part, he prays for his disciples. And then in the section that we're going to study this morning, he prays over future believers over the church. It's the latter part of this prayer that we want to close with because if we can really understand and grasp that these are Jesus's words prayed over us, I think they will impact us in a really fresh way. Because a lot of times we look at scripture and I think we disconnect ourselves from it. We shouldn't, but I think we do. Because much of historical narrative or it's poetic literature that we're not typically used to reading unless you read a lot of ancient historical poetry, which would be really cool. You guys can talk to me about that later. That's awesome. But you guys, we can be disconnected from the scriptures sometimes because it's not written in our time. However, it is pertinent and important and absolutely relevant in our time. Amen. It is the living word of God. 
Warren Wearsby said this of uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17. It is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth and the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in scripture. I'm glad that another theologian said that because I don't know if I feel comfortable saying that, but I'm glad that he did. Because it makes me feel a lot more comfortable about how I feel about this text, how I feel about this prayer. I just, I want us to, to grab a hold of this in a new way, you guys. I want us to grab a hold of this. This is Jesus's prayer for you. This is Jesus's prayer for me. He is praying directly over us. Before he goes to the cross, before he gives his life as a ransom. Let's read this text together. Beginning in John 17, verse 20, Jesus continues and concludes his prayer this way. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you father are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one and the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. This is the words of Jesus. As I've said in prior studies in this series, what we're going to look at this morning is not exhaustive. You could take a whole lot of time. If I remember right, when I taught this through for my youth group years and years ago, when I taught through the gospel of John, it took us a very long time. Um, so much so the kids were like, are you ever going to do more than two verses in one sitting? Um, but you guys, we could spend weeks and weeks on this chapter because it's so deep. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to pull out four key points, four things for us to grab a hold of and to think about, to chew on, to marinate on, to let take root in our hearts. Key points, these are the things that Jesus prays over us that I believe we ought to pursue with all our hearts and minds. And this is what they are. Number one, he's going to pray for unity. Number two, he's going to pray for our witnessing. Number three, he's going to express his longing. That's an interesting one. We'll talk about that. And then he's going to talk about us knowing. So let's deal with the first one. Let's talk about unity. And it's interesting, whenever you talk about church unity, for those of you who were at the Four Church in the Park event that we did with our sister churches in the summer, our whole discussion, our panel discussion was on church unity. And it's interesting how we discussed in that setting, we had people sending questions, and there was a lot of questions we couldn't get to in that time. Um, but we had this, this long-running discussion, and we had it beforehand as the four of us met together, the pastors just talking through what unity means to us, what it actually looks like, what it doesn't look like. But it's something that we have to come down to a, a very foundational belief about. Unity is Jesus's idea. Jesus is very concerned and very focused on his followers, disciples of him, being united. 
In fact, he says it here being one. Look at the text again in verse 20. I pray not only for those or for these, that being the disciples, but for also for those who believe in me through their word. Hey, that's us. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them. You are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now think about this three verses. Jesus prays this, that we would be one, that we would all be one, that he and the father would be in us that we would be one again, and then we would be made completely one. Are you catching his drift? Are we actually, now when was the last time you stopped in reading John 17, you stopped yourself and you're like, wow, Jesus really wants the church to be one. I don't know if we've actually said that out loud like before, if even I like emphasized it as much as I should. Do you think this matters to Jesus? I mean, like, everyone in the room's like, duh. Like, it's obvious. Be one, be one, be one, be one again, be one. And just in case you missed it, be completely one. Right? You guys, do you love Jesus? Okay, I don't. <laughs> do you love Jesus? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Are we allowed to speak aloud in church? I don't know. You guys. We love Jesus, don't we? Do you want your desires to mirror his? If you love Jesus, then you love what he's about. Unity is essential. Unity is an absolute. It's not even a maybe. It's not even if you have time. Jesus prayed it over us, the future church, and it's almost like he knew what was coming. It's almost like he had just spent three to three and a half years with a bunch of guys who argued about who was the greatest all the time. They did it in the upper room. You're like, oh, that was a bygone. Surely in the upper room, it was this holy moment. The spirit descended and there's this crazy thing happening where Jesus is introducing communion and, you know, the guys, oh, we're just in the zone. You know, you ever get in that moment where you're together as a church, you're like, oh, we're just in the zone. The Lord's work in the upper room was Jesus washing their stinking feet, Judas leaving because he had to go betray them, Jesus especially. And then they have the, the guys arguing about who's the greatest, who's the best, what is going on? It's almost like they're just like us. It's almost like they're only concerned about their own benefit and their own growth and their own situation than they are about loving one another, which is why Jesus says, why don't you guys just love each other and stop worrying about what else you're going to do because the world's going to know me through the way you love each other. Amen. That's what he calls them to church. Have we gotten off base yet again? Have we forgotten what God called us to, to be a witness to the lost? What's unity? What is it? Jesus says it's being one. Good job, but what is it? What does it mean for me to be one with you? I hope it doesn't mean we share clothes. You guys, it's got to be something more than that. That would be weird. <laughs> hey, Mike, I need a shirt. <laughs> well, good luck with that one. You know, but you guys, 
Jesus so desperately prays for us to be unified in him. But what if we disagree with each other? What if I don't agree with you? We are now stepping into the waters of things pastors don't like to talk about, right? I would much rather talk to you about issues that are easier, that are more fun. But when we talk about unity, we have to understand what unifies us and what happens when we don't agree. How do we know if an issue is so big that we can't fellowship with one another, or even if someone is orthodox in their beliefs to begin with? I found Gary Brashears, who I've sat in and, and had conversations, some of his, his lectures before, and, and I appreciate him as a mentor. He's very helpful in his approach on this. He's a professor at Western Seminary, and he breaks it down this way. Gospel unity in four categories. Die for, divide for, debate for, decide for. You ever wonder why so many people have a hard time with unity? It's because so many of them are dying on the wrong hills. They're dying on things that we can be okay debating over or things that we can just decide for that are freedoms in grace. They're dying on hills they shouldn't die on. Let me just throw down the essentials for you because these are essential foundational truths that unify us as Christians. Foundational truths are these, the inspiration and the authority of scripture. Amen. The Trinity, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. Amen. You guys, the incarnation of Jesus, including his virgin birth, sinless life, substitutionary atonement, bodily resurrection, and personal return, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. You can say amen. If you want to, that's, that's okay. Biblical absolutes like justification and regeneration by grace alone, through faith alone, the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These are essentials. All of us will look at that and say, yes, as someone who loves the word of God, reads the word of God, these are Christian essentials. These are the hills to die on. But there are things that people separate over that they shouldn't. There's a whole slew of things that we could say. These are divide overs. These are differences of opinion about scripture that maybe we won't go to the same church, but maybe we have a different denomination. Even then, I would say, be very, very careful not to slander your brothers and sisters in other denominations. Be very careful. Be very slow to use the word heretic. Be very slow to throw out the word heresy. We need to take more time. We need to read and have conversations. So many times there are discussions that never take place, which should. We will write people off and wrongly so. Here's the thing. We know what the essentials are. We know what the essential truths are. But are we dying on the wrong hills when it comes to things that we just don't fellowship over? That's my brother and sister in Christ. There are pastors that don't see things the same way that I do here locally, but they're my brothers. They're my brothers and they love Jesus. They got the essentials. We just don't see some of the theological points the same. For the sake of unity and obedience to the prayer of Jesus here in John 17, do we pursue conversations and continue to pursue for those who adhere to the essentials like we do? Or are we so afraid that someone might touch us with their icky, dirty theology that they're somehow going to taint us? Are we that insecure? Are we that insecure about our faith? 
Oh, trust me. When someone talks to me about truth, I'm going to take them to the word. That's what I'm going to talk to them about. I don't decide what truth is. Neither do you. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that I don't call you guys up and say, um, can you redefine this for me? I don't know what to tell this person. Tell me what truth is. You should be very thankful. I don't call you. And you shouldn't call me asking my opinion about truth. You should call me and say, what does the scripture say? Let's sit down and talk about it. Notice how I didn't say, don't call me. (laughs) Like, I still want to talk with you. I want to have these conversations. But when we go to the Bible, the Bible teaches us. The scriptures teach us. More often than I can count and more often than I ever want to see again, I've seen my brothers and sisters die on the wrong hills. And it kills unity. It kills the oneness that Jesus himself calls us to. If they affirm the essentials of the Christian faith, are we unified? Are we pressing towards unity? Even when someone has something that we disagree with, are we trying to winsomely easier to a better understanding so that we can be one? Or are we quick to shove them away? It's, oh, it's far easier to push people away and not worry about unity. It is very hard and it's a lot of work to winsomely draw people into being unified with you. Don't believe me? Raise children. (laughs) Right? It's easy to push them away when they're in your space. Is it the right thing to do? Is it the winsome and God-honoring thing to do rather than winning them to a right understanding or drawing them in closely or saying, hey, we can agree to disagree, but I love you and I care about you. And let's take everything that we talk about to the scriptures and make sure that this is what God wants because that's what we want. As our kids grow increasingly older, as they reach those ages of adulthood, young adults, they're having families of their own. Are we okay with coming together alongside of our kids saying, let us seek to understand what the scriptures say so that we can be one together? You guys, dying on the wrong hills, labeling other Christians as heretics prematurely. There are heretical teachings out there. There is heresy. We must not label it prematurely. Presume or ever presume that we know the whole story after reading one sentence or after watching one clip. You guys, that's where pride grows. That's where pride grows within and humility is forgotten. Gentleness becomes an afterthought and unity never even considered as something to be won or even fought for. Church, I'm convicted over this because I have written people off that shouldn't have been written off. I have cast them aside and not had conversations, not done due diligence, and I was wrong to do that. We need to be very, very careful. And we need to be very, very winsome and remember that Jesus called us over and over and over again to press towards being one, being unified. Because, we're going to talk about this in a minute, that is how the world knows that we belong to him. That's how the world is to glorify God is through us being one. It's so important. These, there are things you guys, um, theologically that we can look at just to do due diligence to this whole subject that we theologically can theologically can debate or decide for. Um, the debate issues are things that we look at theologically that we may see in a different light or applied a little differently that are not core doctrine. We can also look at decide for issues like Romans 14 and 15 that are like, hey, there's grace here, but you should be loving in the way you're doing this. 
You're free to do this, but is it expedient as Paul would say? Church, let us consider carefully and not assume that we know it all. I think Proverbs 26, 12 is so important for us. Do you see a person who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. How much do the Proverbs have to say about wisdom? Lots. How much do the Proverbs have to say about fools? Do you realize that there's more hope for a fool than there is for someone who thinks they know it all? Did you ever slow down and process that on a personal heart level and say, um, I really toot my horn a lot. I'm really a big believer in me and what I think. Maybe I need to be slower to that conclusion. In fact, it scares me to think that I could be put into this genre of people who is wise in their own eyes because there's no humility there. There's no teachability. There's no room for learning. One of my mentors, a pastor who pours into me on a every other week basis, he said it really well. He said, you know what? As a pastor, you should be learning twice as much as you teach. He says, learn twice as much as you teach, especially if you're teaching others. That is so different than how I was raised. The teacher knows it all. The teacher never makes a mistake. Ah wrong. I need to be learning twice as much as I teach. That's a tall order. Not because I have so much to teach you, but because it's what I'm called to do. Therefore, I need to be called to learn twice as much to study and read and pour myself into what God has to say. I don't want to be a person who's wise in my own eyes. It scares me to read Proverbs eight thirteen. to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I'm great with that. I hate arrogant pride. Do you see that? (laughs) Did you read that? Church, I'm okay with you raising your hand. How many of you have known arrogant, prideful Christians? Those of you who aren't raising your hands, let's talk about lying. But here's, here's the thing, you guys. I don't raise my hand in church. You guys, there is a lot of arrogant pride in the church, and God hates it. God hates it, and God forbid that that's named among us, especially for me. A lot of times when you see that culture shift, you see people that are comfortable being arrogant and prideful. Where's the source of that in churches? It's the leadership. It's the leadership. I fully believe That if I am walking humbly, you guys will do the same over time. And it scares me to think that I could influence you to be prideful and arrogant. Do we condemn the sins that trigger us and make excuses for others that we commit? It's arrogant pride. It breaks me to think of the damage that my arrogant pride has done to the unity of the church being more focused on myself rather than others. You guys, Jesus has given us his glory via the Holy Spirit that we may be one as he is one with the Father. Holy Spirit, convict us right now. Find in us a humility as we just confess our arrogant pride and selfishness. Holy Spirit, convict us.
break us of this. Your humility. Give us your heart. Your longing. Make us quick to listen and slow to slow to anger. Forgive us. As you can tell, this hasn't affected me at all this week. I'm so thankful for this scripture. Well, that's point number one. We're doing great. Second key point, witnessing. In this prayer for the church that Jesus prayed over us, verse 21, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, notice the why, so that the world may believe you sent me. He cries out that we would be in him, that we would be in him, in the Father, and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, so that the world may believe. Why is unity important? I mentioned it before, I'll say it really plainly, because Jesus said our oneness is a witness. Jesus said our oneness is a witness so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. True unity happens when we love one another, and there's a byproduct of that kind of love. Jesus spoke of it at the beginning of this discourse in John 13, 34, and 35. He says, I give you a new command, love one another. Now he ups it even more. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Some call this the platinum rule. The golden rule is what? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Jesus says, let's go for a platinum rule here. Love each other the way I love you. You're like, I can't. Not without the Holy Spirit. Stop whining. Gosh. (laughs) By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is how people will know is through our love for each other. Do you know how many times I've watched Christians fight? Do you know how many times I've watched them argue, yell, scream, throw things, yell at me? What did I do? But I mean, like all of these, I mean, I've had people argue with each other, me try and get between, they both start yelling at me. You guys, they're finding a whole slew of things to fight about. And Jesus is like, good, that's what I want my church to do. They're going to know me by how much you fight with each other. It sounds ridiculous. Why? Because it's the opposite. It's the opposite. When we fight, what does the world think of Jesus? Not just the church. What does the world think of Jesus when the church fights? They think ill of him. They think wrongly about him. We misrepresent him. Have we not traded identity? Have we not laid down our lives? Picture baptism. I went into the water dead. I come up alive, reborn in the spirit. Second Corinthians 517 says we are new creations. And so as a new creation, when we fight, what are we doing? We're misrepresenting him. When we're battling with each other instead of loving one another. I hate to break it to you guys, but the stickers on your car are not your true identification. They are not your true identification of salvation. In fact, sometimes it works in the opposite direction. I've never seen a fish cut off so many people. I've never seen Jesus in the co-pilot position driving with someone who's honking and giving them a one finger salute. No, you're number one. 
You guys, <laughs> it's not the stickers on our car. It's not the church sticker on your car. I love that you put transform stickers on your car, but that is not your identification of salvation. Love is. The way that you love each other is how people will identify who you belong to. And Jesus takes it even a step further in the Sermon on the Mount and says, yeah, you know, it's easy enough for you guys. I'm paraphrasing. It's easy enough for you guys to love people that are easy to love and love each other. You know what? Love your enemies. Bless them. Serve them. Not grumble, hate, throw things. One finger salute, whatever it is. God sees. You guys, loving one another is the brand that we wear as God's children. It's our identification in Christ. And don't think brand is in Nike. Great. Now this is going to get taken off Facebook because I said Nike. You guys, <laughs> loving one another is the brand. It's the mark. It's what people see. It's what people see in us. You cannot have love without unity, nor can you have unity without love. They are intermixed. They are connected to one another. To love one another doesn't mean that we agree with each other all the time. This is what it looks like. Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. You might be familiar. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy. It's not boastful. It isn't arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. If you're not feeling convicted right now, just reread all that. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In fact, love never ends. That's what loving each other looks like. That's what the mark of church unity looks like. And it's a witness. This is what the world needs to see. This is what the world must see in us. Patience, kindness. You guys, no envy. Not being boastful or arrogant. Scripture's so congruent. It, it just agrees. It always agrees. Jesus closes this prayer in verse 26 with love. He says, I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. That's his closing remark in this prayer. This is our witness to the world. We can say all the right things to them. We can sermonize. We can theologically debate. You do realize that God's not letting you into heaven based on your perfect theology. And point 44. Good. 45. Oh, so close to hell you go. That doesn't work like that. And I know I'm saying it flippantly, but you realize so not how it works. Aren't you glad? I don't want to live like somebody. It's like, if I don't get this right, God's going to whack me. That's not God. That's not the father. He loves you. You guys, it's, it's love that has to be present in our lives. His love has to be in act, like in action in our lives. It doesn't matter if we say all the right things and we're unloving. Think about what Paul said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13. Trust me, I'm getting close. We are going to get to the other two points. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 2, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Do you have kids that like to hit cymbals in your house? I do. It's just noise, and it's not communicating anything to me. 
if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, that's crazy stuff, but don't have love, what does Paul say? I'm nothing. Sounds like we need to focus a whole lot more on aligning our hearts with Jesus and loving the way he does and being unified with each other than we do about many of the things we, me included, focus on. We care about a great many things. This seems pretty important. I think scripture is screaming that to us as Jesus praised this as a witness over us. Point number three, let's look at Jesus's longing. He's talked about unity. He's talked about us being a witness and how we do that. Now he talks about his longing and this is touching the heart of Jesus. I love this text. Verse 24, father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation church. This is huge. This is huge. This is huge. Please, please quiet your minds. Jesus wants you with him. The savior of the world wants you with him is longing for you to be present with him. That's how much he loves you. He wants you to see his glory. He wants you to see him in his glory. He wants you close to him. That's incredible. We may be, want to be in a thousand different places. You may want to be somewhere else right now. This guy's never going to shut up. You may want to be somewhere else right this very second. Jesus wants you with him. More than you could ever imagine wanting to be anywhere else. Jesus wants you with him. He wanted to express that to us so much that he prayed it and it's recorded and it's being read to us. Spoken from 2000 years ago before we were even born. Church, I believe fully that he wanted every single one of you to know this this morning, that he wants you with him. That he desires for you to be with him and that that's why it's here in scripture. Because he wanted to remind you of that. You may have come for a great many reasons this morning. You may retain a few things from what I've said, but I want you to retain this above them all. Jesus wants you with him, church. He is longing for you to be with him. The love of Jesus saturates the scriptures. John said at the beginning of the upper room discourse in John 13, as he kind of sets the stage, he says before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is alive and he's loving you every minute, every second of your life. His hour had come to depart to the father and here in this prayer, that same night he expresses the longing of his heart. I want them with me. He wants us to see the glory of God from beyond the creation of the world. Church, one day we'll be with him. You realize we must realize that he wants it even more than we do. And one day we'll see him. Church, one day you'll see him face to face. 
Because of the price Jesus paid and the promise that he made. And because of the prayer that he prayed, we have full assurance. I'm very comfortable agreeing with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.8. In fact, we are confident, he says, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He says, it'd be better to be there. Another passage, Paul says, you know what? It'd be better if I was the Lord, but right now he wants me to be with you. He's like, it'd be really cool, but it's better that I'm here with you right now. I I pray that that's our heart for each other. That we see great value and great purpose and that God has us here right now. But in the end, when he takes me home, hallelujah, I can't wait. And not because I want to get out of this place. I think there's some escapism there that we have to address. It's so terrible here. I just got to get out of this place. I want to see Jesus. I don't want to escape just this situation I'm in. I want to be with him. And that's where Jesus says, my spirit is in you. Go. Get to work. I'm ready. Sorry, that was a high note. What was that? B flat? Okay. You guys, Jesus prayed for unity. He prayed for witness. He prayed of his longing for us. And finally, in verse, or in uh, the fourth point here, verses 25 through 26, he talks about knowing. Check this out. Righteous Father, he prays, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. We know the father because the son has revealed him to us. We know the father because the Holy Spirit that indwells you church reveals him to you. Knowledge alone, however, can lead to pride. Love, if you think about it in the same context, Without knowledge, without a head around it, can take us in a different direction. Think of it this way. Paul addresses knowing when he's talking about food laws in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. And it's interesting because that's like a quotation thing. We all have knowledge. In other words, the people are saying we all get this, right? And Paul responds, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If by he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if any God, him, loving God, will lead us to a deeper knowledge of God. This is why when Jesus prays about knowing the Father, he connects it to love. They have to be tethered with each other. Because knowledge alone leads to pride, and love alone can lead us to wrong decisions. For more on that, look at the world around you. And we could even get into the discussion of whether what they call love is love at all. But let's take Paul for what he says in Philippians 1, verses 8 through 9, where he says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge. He wants our love to grow in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. He wants our love to grow in knowledge because the two are tethered to one another. Our minds are to grow in the knowledge of the truth of God. Our hearts are to grow in giving out that love. I need to understand his truth and who he is better so that I can live it out in love in this world and amongst the church. Church, my desire, as we look at these things, as we look at unity, as we look at witness, 
as we look at the longing of Jesus, as we look at knowledge according to love and how they're tethered together, my desire is that we would pray like this. That we would pray like this over each other. That we would pray over one another, that we would grow in the love and the knowledge of God. That we would seek to be unified every single day, pushing into being connected with one another, not isolating away or excusing ourselves from being in fellowship because other people are all wrong and we've got it all right. Jesus prayed that the church would be unified, witnessing to the world through the love that he's poured into him, which he longs for, seated at the right hand of the Father. He longs for his bride. Jesus longs for us to be with him for all eternity. Able to know him because we see him no longer through a mirror dimly, but finally face to face. It's interesting how the Lord sets me on a path sometimes without really showing me what the outcome will be. It's interesting to me that he put this series on my heart about three months ago to do. And my desire at that moment, and it still is now, is that the prayers of scripture would shape our prayer lives. I didn't even think about it at the time, but we had already scheduled the all-night prayer night to be this week. And we happened to be ending our prayer series here right before all-night prayer night. And I want to challenge you guys to revisit these texts that we've studied. You're like, what were they? Nehemiah 1, 1 Samuel 2, Luke 1, and here in John 17. All different aspects of prayer and praise and rejoicing and responses to God and calling out to him, all these types of things that we would be shaped by the prayers of scripture. You guys, I really believe that a body in a church that's committed to prayer will see the hand of God move powerfully. And I think that many of you have been committed to prayer and that's why we're seeing the Lord's hand move in such powerful ways. Worship team, would you guys come on up? I want to encourage you guys to continue to press into that, to press into a life of prayer that is aligned and fed from scripture. That's fed from the word of God. I mentioned it before, but we've got a great resource out on the free book table out there in the lobby. When you leave, you can take a copy. It's called how to pray the Bible or praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. Um, It's not like a manual. It's like this thick can read it in a sitting, Um, but it's just to refresh your prayer time with the Lord. It's a great tool to use if you feel like sometimes I do. You get to this place where you're praying the same things over and over again. Use the same words. You say the same things. And all he does is take you to the Psalms especially, but to the scriptures and says, pray the Bible. Pray the scriptures. Let the scriptures be the language that you use to pray. It's important. We're going to take communion together this morning. I want to invite those who are going to distribute to communion. Come on up. Um, As we share in communion this morning, I want to remind us, as I often do, of a few things. Um, Communion's a family meal. It's for the church. Something that Jesus shared on this night with his disciples. And as Jesus shared communion with the church, with his believers, with his followers, as we take one bread, it represents Jesus symbolically to us. 
We're affirming that we're one body with them and with each other. This is a piece of that unity. And don't discount this as mere symbolism that we do on a rhythmic basis here. I want to challenge you and encourage you that this is important to our unity. This is us taking together saying the same body that was broken has saved us all. The same blood as we partake of the cup that was shed saves us from our sin. We share in this together as a family. And so if you're a non-believer, I want to ask you to let the bread and the cup pass. If you want to know Jesus, I want you to come up and we'll pray and you can receive Jesus this morning. That'd be great. But before you take communion, you must be a believer. You must belong to Jesus because you are partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus. It's not to be taken lightly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. He says, think carefully about what you're doing. Examine yourself when you take communion. And so what we're going to do this morning is as they're distributing the elements, we're going to give you time to examine yourself and we're going to play the fourth and final song that we wrote for this series, um, which is a response of worship to Jesus. And I'm going to let Angelica explain that to you. Um, and then she'll pray for us and, and lead us into our distribution of communion. When you get the elements for communion, I want to encourage you to um, hold on to those. We'll finish the song and then we'll take that together as a family. But Angelica would like to share with you guys the heart behind this song and then she'll pray for us.